0: Moses prayed to God, God send the successor that the people may not be like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus, the greater Moses, sees the people and says, they're like sheep without a shepherd. Verse 31, he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. So that's a command that he gives to them. It's in the imperative, come away. He's giving them a command, a directive for them to do. But notice in the authority of his command, coupled together, wedded together with his authoritative command is an equal concern and an equal care for the disciples. He commands them and his command is for their good, which should come as absolutely no surprise to us because every command of the Lord is precisely the same. Every command of the Lord is the authoritative command of God that's coupled together perfectly with His desire for our best, specifically our eternal best. So He gives them this authoritative command, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. So here we begin to see what I'll point out is the first motif. And that's the motif of God's provision, of God's desire to provide both food and rest in a desert place. And if you think for just a few moments, we won't trace this through the Old Testament because we don't need to. You can, For yourselves, you can recollect so many, many stories and instances in which there is an occasion in the desert, in the wilderness, and God's people are seeking either rest or food or both. And then God either provides that or for some reason refrains from providing that or doesn't provide that. So many instances that that occurs throughout the stories of our scriptures. We can think, of, of course, the main one of the Hebrew children in their time in the wilderness as God commands Pharaoh, let let my people go. And then we go through the plagues and we cross the Red Sea and everything. And then we get to the desert and coming to the desert. Moses says, how am I going to feed these people? And then, of course, there comes the manna, there comes the quail, there comes the water from the rock. And so that's probably the biggest, the grandest story of God's desire to provide rest and food for His people in the wilderness. But we see so many minor stories that carry the same theme. The story of Elijah. If you remember the story of Elijah after the incident on Mount Carmel when he flees and he's in the same desert, and there God provides for him food and rest, only He does it directly from the hand of the second person of the Trinity, the, the second person of the Godhead. We see the same theme in the lives of Abraham as Abraham is commanded to leave the land of Ur and go to this land of promise, but all he ever really dwells in is this desert place, in this desert place in which God desires to be His provider, but then there comes the famine. And in, in Abraham's sin, he fails to trust God and he flees to Egypt. We see it in the story of Ruth as uh, as Uh, Naomi flees the land of bread, Bethlehem, and goes to the land of the Moabites to flee from the the famine. And so many others. There's there's at least half a dozen other storylines in our Old Testament in which the theme of the story is the theme of God's people in the wilderness. God sends them into the wilderness or calls them into the wilderness, and in that wilderness experience, there is this desire for God to provide food for them and for God to provide rest for them. Sometimes the food and rest are provided. Sometimes due to the sinfulness or the hard-heartedness of the people, it is not provided. But we see this many instances. For example, Psalm 95, He is our God and we are the people of His pasture. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in Meribah, when your fathers put me to the test and... and Put me to the proof, though they had not seen my they had seen my work, they are a people who go astray in the heart, and they have known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now the writer to the Hebrews picks up on that, and he takes over a chapter, from chapter three through halfway through chapter four, to draw out that theme of God's people failed to trust him in the wilderness, and so therefore they did not enter the rest. And so you are to not be like that. You are to trust where they fail to trust. Isaiah 63, like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you lead, led your people to make yourself for yourself a glorious name. Or Jeremiah 31 in verse 2. Therefore, says the Lord, the people who survived the sword and found grace in the wilderness when Israel sought for rest. And we could go on and on. The Lord wants to be seen as the provider of food and rest, particularly in the desert. So we're going to begin making some connections there, the wilderness, the desolate place, and God's desire to be the rest provider and the food provider in that. But we know, of course, that Jesus is our ultimate rest. Uh, Jesus is the rest which all of this is pointing to. He says to the disciples, come with me, to take your rest. And so they go with Jesus. And ironically, they're going not with Jesus, but they're going with their ultimate rest. So we know how the scriptures point us to Jesus as our ultimate rest, our ultimate spiritual rest, because in Jesus, we rest from our efforts to find God's favor on our own, to please God through our own law keeping or our own good deed doing. And so we put down those tools, that labor to rest in Jesus's work of pleasing God on our behalf by means of his sacrifice and we rest in him. That's how he is our Sabbath rest. But he commands them here to go away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. So in this is built in tremendous theological meaning, but also is built into this tremendous I believe, practical help as well. And the practical help comes to us from the one who told us earlier in chapter 3 that he himself is the Lord of the Sabbath. And the practical help is this, is that God understands that we, as weak jars of clay, require wet rest, and he commands us to rest. And so for some of us, the command to rest, the command, and I'm speaking of, of not spiritual rest, but I'm speaking of physical rest. As Jesus invites the disciples to come and take this physical rest, likewise, God also created our time in such a way as to be a sequence of periods, a period of, of six days and one day, six days and one day, a period of work and rest and work and rest. And so his command is to us, you are humans, you are frail, you are under the consequence of sin, and so therefore you need to rest. So for some of us, this is an easy thing. For for others of us, it's not so easy of a thing, is it? Because God has wired us differently. And some of us, for some of us, God has wired us in such a way that God says, take a rest. You you ain't going to tell me twice. I'll take two rests while I'm at it. I'll go ahead and rest for next week too. But then others of us, God has wired us differently or I might put it this way, God's creation of us, his unique creation of us interacts differently with our fallen nature in such a way that for for some of us, this command to rest is a difficult one. And for some of us, in our arrogance, we can say, you know, "I'm, I'm better. We wouldn't say it in these words, but we can say I'm better than those who need to rest. I'm better than that. I'm more durable than that. I'm harder than that. And so I don't need that. And that's That's an expression of arrogance and that's an expression of pride. And all of us can take that for what it's worth as an admonition from the Scriptures. But really, the point of this passage of the Scriptures is really pointedly directed at only one person in the room. And don't worry about who I'm looking at right now because it's not you. The point of the passage is most directly towards me because the context of the passage is Jesus' words and Jesus' command towards those who are ministering in His name, and have just completed a time of ministry in which they have ministered the Word to people. And Jesus' command to them is to, specifically, He says, not just go and rest, He says, come away. Meaning to leave the context of that ministry and go to a place that's away from that context of ministry with me And rest. Now, I know that the word with me is not there in the text, but Jesus' command is come. It's not go. If if you're telling somebody to go, then you're telling them to go without you. If you're telling them to come, then the, the necessary implication is come along with me. And so the most direct application of the passage is for those who minister the word on a regular basis. And God's command to us is on a regular basis, come away with me for a time of rest. I probably need to hear that more than anyone else in the room, but I, I was gracious enough to let you listen, Lynn, as God was preaching to me right there. So come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. So the situational context here is the the, the that the situational context that began all the way back in chapter 1 from that Day of healing. Remember that day of healing that went all day on the Sabbath and into the night and then through most of the night, that massive day of healing from that moment. We have noticed over and over how Jesus's life has just been this constant being flocked by people. And so this constant people around and constant pressing upon them. And so these disciples have been experiencing that since the day of healing back in chapter 1, but they've now experienced this on a different level because they've now experienced it without Jesus there receiving and absorbing the brunt of the busyness, of the, of the demand upon them, of the, the requirement for them to teach and to explain and the requirements that are placed upon them. They have experienced this on their own. So the context of this is Jesus, as Mark says, that they... They had not even the leisure to eat. Now, if you notice, that's the second time that we've been told that the disciples specifically did not have time to eat. Remember back in chapter 3? In chapter 3, it was in another one of those sandwich stories, the sandwich story with the Pharisees coming because they came up from Jerusalem because they were so irritated at Jesus. Well, in that was the story of Jesus' family who had heard about the crowds and the size of the crowds and the things Jesus was saying and doing, and they became so embarrassed that they go to take Jesus back with them even against His will by force. And we're told there that the reason, the impetus, the sort of the final straw, that thing which the family heard about this and they're like, yep, we've been hearing about this for six months now and we've been putting this off, but now we just can't ignore this anymore. We gotta go do something about this. The straw that broke the camel's back was, we're told, The disciples couldn't even eat. There was no time to eat. There's so many people flocking around them that there's no time to eat. Just to refresh our memory from chapter 3, then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying he's out of his mind. So this is the second time that we're now told that the disciples and Jesus literally did not have time to eat. The first time we're told that was the impetus for the family coming to try to take Him back. And Jesus rebukes the family and He says to them, my true family are the, the, the children of God, the people of God who hear the Word of God and obey it. And then they leave and go back. The second time is this occasion where the disciples now have returned and they're once again so busy that nobody has time to fix any food or eat anything. And on this, this occasion, Jesus will now take the disciples and He'll give them sort of a gentle rebuff. He rebuffed His family earlier. Here He's going to rebuff the, 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 the disciples. And the point of that is, as we'll see later on next Sunday, the point of that is, is that you're failing to look to Christ, to look to God for the help that you need. So two rebuffs come and both of them come in the context of the disciples not having enough time to eat. So I want you to take that, this idea that the disciples now, it's it's rather unusual, isn't it? That Mark says two times that they didn't have time to eat. Take that and sort of put it in the back of your mind. We're going to bring that back out next Sunday and that's going to have importance for us next Sunday. So he says, come away and rest. Come away. You haven't even had time to eat, verse 32. And they went away in the boat. So that's probably still the same boat that they went across the Sea of Galilee to uh, the land where the, the man known as Legion was and came back in the boat. And he says, come to a desolate place. He says, let us go to this desolate place by them by themselves. So the, the word translated desolate place is the word eramos. And you know that word because we've talked about that word a lot. Because that word shows up a great deal in Mark's gospel. Eramos, wilderness, desert, deserted place, desolate place. So we've seen that word. We began seeing it at the very beginning when we're told that John is a voice crying out in the eremos in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, bring low the mountains, bring up the valleys. And then we're told that John the baptizer is baptizing in the eremos in the wilderness. And then we're told that Jesus goes out and he's also baptized in the eremos in the wilderness. And then we're told that the spirit drove Jesus into the Eremos, into the wilderness, into the desert place for him to be tempted. And that he was in the wilderness for 40 days. And then later on in chapter one, we're told that Jesus rises early so that he can go to the Eremos, to the wilderness, to the deserted, deserted places to pray. And then we have that story of the leper when Jesus cleanses the leper and he tells the leper, don't tell anybody what I've done. But instead he tells everybody so that now Jesus himself has to go to the to the wilderness, the the deserted place, and while the leper goes back into the town and into the village. So this desert, this wilderness place is a theme that Mark has landed on and now he brings this theme back out. It's the theme of the wilderness from which John comes, from which he calls, into which the people go to be baptized, into which Jesus goes to be immersed into the sinfulness of the people and then into which Jesus is driven for His time of temptation and trials, and then into which Jesus voluntarily goes to pray, and then into which Jesus now must go in exchange for this cleansed leper to now be reunited with His friends and family. This theme of a desert place, the deserted place, keep that in mind as we'll draw that out further as we go. Now verse 33, Now many saw them going and recognized them. So that says to us that these disciples and Jesus, they're getting in the boat, they're leaving and some people perhaps see them and they say, hey, I know those guys. Isn't that Jesus? And isn't that, isn't that the crowd that always hangs around Jesus? I know them. So they see them and recognize them. However, that word them, if you look at that word them, that's supplied. If you if you have a uh, King James, an italicized King James, then it'll show you that that them is in italics, meaning that them is not Part of what Mark wrote. Instead, Mark wrote that they saw them and they recognized. Now, we, they had to, our translators had to supply something because in the English, recognize is what's called a transitive verb, meaning that it needs a direct object. You can't just say, Oh, uh, I recognize. And you say, recognize what? We, our English doesn't work that way. When you recognize, you got to recognize something. You got to recognize a person or something like that. So that's why the editors of our Bible have supplied them for it to make sense to us in English. However, Mark didn't say them. He just said they recognized. So perhaps what he's saying is that they recognize the disciples and Jesus or perhaps he's saying that they recognized what's happening. And I think that's probably more likely that they recognized what's going on. They recognize the fact that Jesus is leaving because I find that just fits the flow. It fits the context more than, oh, aren't those the disciples? Everybody knew the disciples, and and they had been seeing Jesus and flocking to Jesus now for months. So it makes more sense to me that they recognized, wait a minute, they look like they're leaving, they're getting in a boat. Are are these guys leaving? So they get in the boat and they recognize what's happening and they ran there on foot. That word that Mark uses speaks of, oh, I don't know, you've seen the videos of uh, the, the crazy people in Spain that run with the bulls? You know what I'm talking about? Where there's this crowd of people and this, and this mob of people. And it's not just a mob of people, but it's a mob of people running. That's the word that Mark uses. It, it describes a, a sort of a desperate run together where people are running and even falling over each other. That's the word that he uses. So they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of him. So probably what is happening here. Is that Jesus and the disciples get in the boat, and in the boat they never leave the site of the shore. And so the people see the boat from the shore, and they're sort of following, running along with the boat as the boat is traversing across the sea. Now, Luke is going to tell us that they go to the region of Bethsaida, where Peter is from. That would have that's if that's where they indeed go, which is what Luke says, then that would be a journey over water of about four miles and a journey over land of about eight miles. So they traverse this eight mile or so while they're kind of watching the boat, where the boat's going. Maybe they're sort of figuring out, looks like he's going to Bethsaida. So they're following along the land, and that sort of thing, keeping sight of the boat as they go. Now, later on in the story, we're going to get some idea as we've been talking all along about the sizes of the crowd and the number of the people, the sheer volume of people that are flocking around Jesus. But yet to, to this date, we've not been given a number to kind of go with. But in the story, we're going to be given a number, and we know that number is, of course, 5,000 men. Now, we don't take that to mean that there are 5,000 men plus women and children following along the air, edge of the shore. The 5,000 number doesn't come until later after Jesus has been teaching. So while Jesus is teaching later, the crowd's going to get bigger. They're going to hear, Jesus, oh, Jesus is teaching again. Let's go. and and their friends are going to hear, they're going to pass word, and the crowd's going to grow while Jesus is teaching. So there's not 10,000 people walking along the shoreline. There's there's a lot of people, there's a crowd, and they're following him, and they got there ahead of him, which says something about their speed. I mean, they cover eight miles faster than Jesus can cover four miles on boats. So verse 34, And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. Just imagine for a moment, what you and I would have reacted with if we were a disciple. So exhausted and so tired, we haven't even had time to fix a meal. And you know, there's no 7-Elevens in the ancient world. You can't stop by and grab something on the run. There's nobody to cook. We haven't had time to cook any food. We haven't had time to, to go buy any food market or nothing we're hungry, we're tired, we're exhausted. Jesus said, let's go rest a while. You make this journey and you're about to have this much needed rest and there's a crowd when you get out of the boat. All of us would have been so disappointed as to probably have voiced our disappointment. And maybe the disciples did. But notice Jesus never will. Notice that Jesus will never give one hint of disappointment in the story. That will Come back to us next week as well. So he gets ashore. He went ashore. He sees this great crowd. The crowd is here to welcome him. There's another motif right there, the the theme of welcoming Jesus, of welcoming him, him here. That's a theme that began at his birth when he was welcomed by the shepherds, welcomed by the angels, welcomed by the magi. And it continues, of course, and it will be repeated on his triumphal entry when Jesus is welcomed into the city. And then, of course, that is foreshadowing for us and pointing for us the great welcoming of Jesus when Jesus returns for His people. So He comes ashore. He's welcomed ashore by this, what Mark says, great crowd, a mega crowd, literally. And He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, sheep without a shepherd would have been to the Jew one of the most lamentable and tragic situations that they could imagine. Because the Jew, they lived in a culture different from our culture in the sense that there was an attachment to not just their flocks, but specifically to their sheep. We don't have an attachment to sheep in our culture. We might have a little bit of attachment to cows. You know, I mean... We like the meat of cows a whole lot more, hamburger. We all like everybody like hamburgers, steaks and everything. So our culture kind of has this thing with cows. And we see them, you know, the Chick-fil-a cow. We see little cute little pictures of cows everywhere and sort of thing. We sort of have an affinity. If you take that and maybe multiply it by 15 or 20, that would describe the Jewish culture and their affinity for the sheep. It was a central part of their culture. It was a staple of their economy. It was an absolute staple in their diet. And so the sheep to the Jew was something... Well, I mean, just think of just how often God draws from that metaphor of the sheep and how important that was for God and His Word and how important it was for the readers of God's Word and how they connected... As God describes sheep, and He describes us as sheep, and you are the sheep of my pasture, and He is the shepherd. So there's this this affinity to the sheep. Now the sheep, as we all know, is the greatest example of why Darwinian evolution cannot possibly be true. Because the sheep is the absolute dumbest, stupidest animal in creation. And if you, you don't even have to have been around sheep. You've read about them, I'm sure or you've heard, heard some preacher talk about them, just how they absolutely cannot survive without the shepherd. They are an animal that is incapable of surviving on their own. They can't find water on their own. They can't find food on their own. They will literally, if they're grazing uh, on a, some area of grass, they'll, they'll graze it till it's nothing and then die, or they'll graze right off the edge of a cliff, or they'll fall and roll down the cliff and can't get up. I mean, it's, just, it's almost humorous how dumb an animal the sheep is because they literally cannot live without the shepherd. And so I think God has created this and and made this animal in such a way as the perfect illustration for who we are because we are the sheep, right? But to the Jew, the idea of a sheep without a shepherd would have been like this heartbreaking thing because it meant absolute disaster for the sheep. They cannot survive. They, they will be eaten by a predator in quick fashion. And until the time that they are not, or until the time that they are eaten by a predator, they won't be able to find water. They won't be able to protect themselves. They won't be able to even find shelter from the weather. They can do nothing. And so the idea of a shepherdless sheep to the Jew would have been just a heartbreaking scenario. And this is how the people are described. They are like sheep without a shepherd. Now, if we were living in Jesus's time and his culture, then that would have rang a bell for us because that would have taken us back to Moses in Numbers chapter 27. In Numbers chapter 27, if we were Jews in Jesus's day, we would have recalled the story of when Moses was asking God for a successor for the people, for a successor to take his place. And he prays to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. And so that's the imagery, the analogy that Jesus is drawing on, the connection that he makes now with Moses. And we're going to begin to see this theme, this motif again, of Jesus as the greater Moses. Moses prayed to God, God, send the successor that the people may not be like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus, the greater Moses, sees the people and says, they're like sheep without a shepherd.